You guys, uh, welcome to Apologetics Week 6. We're going to be proving the existence of God to atheists. Let me pray, and then let's get right into the material. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for who you are tonight, and we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together uh, to learn to uh, proclaim your gospel in a more accurate and bold way. And Lord, I ask tonight that you would be with us, you would give us clear minds, and that you enable us all to uh, be better equipped to proclaim the gospel to the perishing. So I lift up my brothers and sisters here. I ask, Lord, that you would equip them to go out and be about the Great Commission. And, Lord, use even somebody like me to proclaim your glorious truth. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do is I'm going to show you the first slide is from something called the New Atheists. Now, some of you may know some of the New Atheists. They have uh, the names such as Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and, of course, Richard Dawkins, and there's others. Now, these new atheists are making inroads in a lot of the colleges. In fact, they are kind of an elite. They're looked at, anyway, as elite intellectuals by many in academia today. And I'm going to show you a slide here from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a biologist from, actually, Oxford. He used to teach at Oxford in England. And he, in 1990, I think it was, I'm sorry, it was 2006, he had a book that was called The God Delusion. Well, he has another one out. And this one is actually called The Enemies of Reason. And promoting his book, he said this. He said, There are two ways of looking at the world, through faith and superstition or through the rigors of logic, observation, and evidence. In other words, through reason. Reason and a respect for evidence are precious commodities. The source of human progress and our safeguard against fundamentalists and those who profit from obscuring the truth. Yet today, society appears to be retreating from reason. What's interesting is I agree with Richard Dawkins that, in fact, society is retreating from reason. However, I believe it's the atheists that have retreated from reason altogether. And what I'm going to make the claim to you today, well, first of all, I'll say these are fighting words, aren't they? (laughs) And um, you know what? We're going to fight back. And I think it's time that we as Christians start shooting across the bow in a loving way because the ammunition is on our side and it does no good to leave bad arguments unopposed, okay? So I'll make a bold assertion, and it is this. We can prove the existence of God using the very criteria posited by atheists such as Dawkins, okay? Using things like the rigors of logic, observation, and evidence in his own words. And two, this is what we'll accomplish tonight. We can prove that atheists are either irrational or unscientific to hold the atheism. We are going to put them in a dilemma whereby if they deny the existence of God, they are going to either have to deny a law of logic and therefore irrational, or they are going to have to deny laws of science and therefore they're unscientific. Those are the only two options we're going to give them. All right? Oh, before I get started, too, I want to mention something, uh, because this comes from the, the Christian community side. I just addressed some things I wanted to say to the atheist crowd, but I want to talk about the Christian community at large. When I was in seminary, I remember Christians, well-meaning ones, would come to me and say, Eric, we can't prove the existence of God. And what they really meant by that is not that we can't, but rather we ought not to be. And a lot of times the reason that they would say is, well, any God that you can prove certainly isn't worth worshiping. I want you to think about that. To me, that's a non sequitur. Why is a God that you cannot prove worth worshiping more than a God that you can prove? Okay, it doesn't seem to follow to me. 
And what's more is a lot of times I've heard people say, well, you can't put God in a test tube. Friends, tonight, I guarantee you, I will not try to put God in a test tube. And I, I'll never try to do that, okay? That seems to be rather outrageous to try something like that. So, friends, just because we can prove the existence of God does not mean we're limiting God, and it does not mean that we're limiting his worthiness to be worshipped and adored. Does that make sense? Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that right at the outset because you're going to hear that from Christians, all right? Now, let's get started. I want to talk about the four basic arguments for God's existence, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, I think, the best argument there is. I'm going to put it up front. It's the cosmological argument. And then there's three other ones. There's the ontological, the moral, and the teleological. I think the teleological is very good. The moral, I think, is actually pretty good, too. But for the sake of time, I want to make sure we get through the cosmological. So we're going to save that towards discussion time. Does that make sense? So for the 50 minutes, I'm going to try to just talk through the cosmological argument because I find it to be so persuasive. So let me show it to you. And by the way, your categorical syllogisms are going to come in handy, but don't worry. If you, if you don't remember how to do them, don't worry. We'll just, I'll lead you through these. But remember the cosmological argument, the short definition is this. It simply states that the finite universe or a non-eternal universe must have been caused by an infinite or eternal being who we call God. Okay. Now what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to show you a categorical syllogism that says the same thing. Premise one, all things with a beginning must be caused. Premise two, the universe had a beginning. And then here comes the therefore, the universe must be caused. Now, I checked this for formal validity, and believe it or not, I know it looks maybe like you don't have three terms. You may have four, but you actually have three terms if you just think about it right. (laughs) And so this is, in fact, a valid argument. Now, why is it important that it's valid? If it's a valid argument and the two premises are true, what must necessarily be true? The conclusion, right? That's why this is such a powerful argument. Now, mind you, we're not going to use, this isn't our argument. I'm going to show you how I would do it, present the argument before an atheist on the street or at a restaurant, but this is just kind of the textbook argument. So don't worry about getting too in-depth here, but I want you to think about the power of this argument. This argument is not surmountable. The first premise, here's premise one, all things with a beginning must be caused. This is really what's called a tautology because by definition it's true. For instance, if anything ever had a beginning, it must be caused because nothing can self-create itself. Why? Because of the law of causality, right? So premise one, nobody can take issue with it. Otherwise, they're taking issue with the law of non-contradiction and the law of causality. So if somebody tries to take issue with this argument with premise one, they're irrational, all right? So it's that simple. So now all we have to do is worry about premise two. Well, what I'm going to show you is this. The second premise is true in light of the overwhelming scientific evidence. So with premise two, we're going to be shifting from deductive reasoning to inductive reasoning, which is scientific reasoning. And when we look at all the scientific evidence, it is overwhelming that, in fact, the universe cannot be eternal. So if both of those premises are true, and it is in valid form, and it is, I've checked it, therefore the conclusion is necessarily true. And in fact, what does it say? The universe must be caused. And therefore, there must be a creator who created it. Okay? Now, let me show you how I would actually go about proving this. Again, I'm going to give you kind of the big schematic. I showed you this slide earlier a few weeks ago. But again, the, the, the debate really should center around whether or not we have an eternal creator or an eternal universe. Because remember, let me read this down here for you. 
something or someone must be eternal. Why? Because out of nothing, nothing comes. If there ever again was a time that there was nothing, there would be nothing now. All right? So something must be eternal for anything to exist now. So it's either the universe or there's an eternal being outside the universe. It's that simple. So what we're going to show you is that any other option anyone comes up with, for instance, everything is an illusion, or the universe self-created itself, these are irrational options. They're illogical. And we're going to prove that the universe cannot be eternal, and therefore we're left only with an eternal creator. That's the only option. Now let me show you how I would actually do it. And what I recommend is... If, for instance, if you can meet somebody who's an atheist at a restaurant, I would take a pad of paper and write this argument out for him. Okay, it's four possibilities for the beginning of the universe. And also, if I were you, I would memorize this. This is a very easy argument that you can memorize and take it to the street. So this is a very, very practical argument you can take with you. Let me show you the different ways that we can come about with the beginning of the universe. The four possibilities for the existence of the universe are as follows. Number one, All that exists is merely an illusion. In other words, it doesn't exist at all, right? Number two, the universe self-created itself. The universe is eternal, number three. And number four, the universe was created by an outside being who we call God. Now, let me stop there. Sometimes people will say, well, what if the eternal being is a flying spaghetti monster? That was I heard an atheist say that, and that is kind of turned into one of their jokes, right? If it's... If it's an eternal God, it may as well be an eternal flying spaghetti monster. And the reason why they say that is it has to be something eternal. Who cares what it is? Well, the problem with saying that is, remember, the law of causality really says that every cause or every effect, sorry, must have a sufficient cause. And so when you start putting meat and bones on who this spaghetti monster must be in order to create what we see, we know, first of all, he would have to be eternal. He would have to be powerful enough to create everything we see. He would have to be intelligent enough to do so. And all of a sudden, when you start putting meat and bones on this flying spaghetti monster, it starts looking a lot like the God of the Bible. Okay? So we're not going to let him get away with that. But I just want you to be aware that sometimes they'll say, well, it might as well be anything eternal. Why does it have to be God? Well, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to eliminate all three of these except the fourth one. Let's start with number one. I think everything is an illusion. So again, here are four possibilities. Now, if somebody thinks that everything is an illusion, I usually just walk away from them, okay? Because they're an illusion, all right? But but seriously, if you want to if you want to engage them, there's a foolproof way of destroying this idea. And it comes from actually a rationalist. We didn't study him last week, but remember we talked about rationalists? Rene Descartes was a rationalist. Remember he has the famous I think, therefore I am? Well Rene Descartes actually did some good work for us here. Now, what Rene Descartes tried to do is he tried to come up with a foundation for knowledge by which he knew he could stand on that for sure. He knew something for sure, and he could stand on it and and know other things. Okay, And one of the things that he decided that he could know was that he existed. Okay, Now, how did he figure that out? Let me show you. What he started to do is he went on a, a crusade of, uh, for, he started doubting everything. He doubted everything existed. He doubted his own existence. But what he realized was this, that if we doubt, we are thinking. Okay? And then he reasoned this way. He says, if we are thinking, we are doing something, right? Thinking is doing something. And then he reasoned, well, nothing cannot do something. 
And therefore, only if something can do something, we have proven something, namely that we exist. And that's where it's the I think, therefore I am comes into play. Because if we doubt, friends, that everything exists, if we doubt Uh, We may say, hey, I think everything's an illusion. We're still thinking. And thinking is doing something, and nothing can't do something, and therefore we've proven existence. And friends, all we have to do is prove anything exists. It can be lint. It can be an eraser. It doesn't matter, because what you do then was with that eraser, you would say, well, either the eraser is self-created, the eraser is eternal, or the eraser was created by an outside being. You see? All you have to do is prove that something exists. And you can use this argument, which we've done. Okay, and again, typically you're not going to run into people that believe everything's an illusion. All right. I've I've never run into it yet, but here you go. So what we can do is we can conclude that argument number one is absurd. So now we're only left with three other options. Now, the next one is really a form of spontaneous generation, if you think about it, which has been scientifically proven to be false many for, for really hundreds of years now. And that is the, the belief that the universe could self-create itself. All right. Now, how do we get around this? Well, it's very simple. How can the universe self-create itself? It would have to not exist and exist at the same time to put itself into existence. It violates the law of non-contradiction, and it also violates the law of causality, doesn't it? Okay. So, in fact, if somebody were to hold to this view, they would be irrational, right? And so what you can do is you can show the person that this is an irrational possibility. It is impossible. The logic cop should come up and tell you you can't go there. And so we can cross that one out. All right? Now, does everybody track with me so far? Does that make sense? That's, that just violates a law of logic. Therefore, it's not an option. Now, what are we left with? Well, we're left with only two possibilities, the eternal universe or an eternal being outside of the universe who we call God. And what we're going to do now is we're going to shift. So far, our arguments have been deductive. We have shown through deductive logical reasoning that the first two options are not possible. Now we're going to be dealing with probability because we're dealing with inductive reasoning, but we're going to be dealing with a very, very high degree of probability because of the inductive evidence is so persuasive. All right. So we're going to be looking at the law of entropy. Let me put up the four again. Okay, so again, the third option is the universe is eternal. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the biggest problem is the second law of thermodynamics. Let me give you a a good definition. A good definition, I think, of the second law of thermodynamics would say this. In a closed system, which the universe is, okay, we don't have a multiverse, we have a universe, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, but in a closed system, all energy is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state. Or, saying in another way, all energy is tending towards equilibrium. All right. So it's a qualitative statement about energy, meaning that one day all the stars will burn out, the sun will burn out, and the the universe itself will die of heat decay, okay, of heat loss. We will have no longer any usable energy left in the universe. Yes, the first law of thermodynamics says you can't get rid of stuff, whether matter or energy. You always have the same amount of stuff that makes up the universe. But the second law says all that stuff is becoming less and less usable to the point where one day the universe will die of heat decay. Does that make sense? Now, let me show you the problem with that. And I use two lines, and I hope this this makes so much sense to me, but when I tell other people, they kind of look at me quizzically. So we'll see what you think. So all energy is becoming less usable. Whoops, I don't want to go that far. Think about these two lines. This one line that I have on down here, the big one, I want you to think of that as a line that represents the lifespan of the universe 
and it goes off into either direction to eternity. It's without end, all right? That would be what the lifespan of the universe would be if it, in fact, was eternal. It would go on forever. However, the second law of thermodynamics says we only have this much usable energy. You see? Now, you can plot this line anywhere along this line in the infinite past, and you can tell very easily that now would not occur if the universe was, in fact, eternal, right? Because we only have a finite supply of usable energy. And so everything would be burnt out. We'd be in the dark right now. I wouldn't be preaching. My computer would be dead, and we'd just, nothing would happen. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we can't have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy. It's like trying to drive your F-150 around the world with six bucks. It doesn't work, okay? It just simply doesn't work. So what we can conclude, therefore, and this, remember, this is a law of physics. This isn't just someone's theory. This is the second law of thermodynamics, and it is on our side. And to me, that is really good news. So what we can conclude just from the second law is this. Option three must be discarded, and therefore the only option we're left with is the fourth one, right? The fourth option is the only one that is both logically and scientifically viable, all right? Now, what have we done here? Well, we've created a monster, haven't we? We have made the atheists scorchingly mad because we are putting them in a dilemma whereby if they deny the existence of God, they only have two possible choices. They can accept premise two and therefore deny a law of logic, or they can accept premise three and therefore deny a law of science. So again, in order to deny a creator, the atheist has to be either irrational or unscientific. And they're really in a quandary. So sometimes, here's how I do it. I use that four-step process when I'm out on the street, but sometimes if I have a particularly virulent atheist, I'll use this dilemma right up front. Okay, I'll, I'll say, well, what do you deny, the law of logic or a law of science? I tell them, you're either irrational or unscientific. And that usually gets them fighting a little bit. It gets them sputtering because they hate to be called unscientific. All right? So that's kind of fighting words. But I do that sometimes if they don't want to really engage because that usually presses their buttons. But remember, we're doing this in a loving manner. We're doing this because we want to destroy the foundation of atheism, which is false, false reasoning. All right. We want to destroy that so they're left with nothing so we can say, you know what? In fact, I think the reason why you don't want there to be a God is because of your sex life or because of whatever sin that you have in your life. That's the real reason you don't want there to be a God. Okay. We need to tell it to them straight. All right. Okay. So that's what we've done here. We've put them in a dilemma. All right. Now, let me show you some possible objections that the atheists may come up with. And I'm going to be looking at premise three. Now, if you recall premise three in our argument, the four-stepper, we claim that the universe cannot be eternal. Now, let me show you some comebacks that the atheists have had. One is the steady state theory by Frederick Hoyle. Um, Frederick Hoyle is a scientist who posited this idea that perhaps the universe has hydrogen atoms that pop into existence. Okay? Now, where has he had observation of that? He has not. He is merely wishing that that would be the case, and it's called the steady-state theory. Somehow, somewhere in the universe, there are hydrogen atoms that are popping into existence, and therefore, it can be eternal, and therefore, you don't need an eternal being, okay? So that's one argument. Another argument is a unique portion of the universe is, in fact, eternal, okay? We just haven't discovered it yet. Now, again, what's the problem with that? Well, it's a form of special pleading, or you might say an informal argument of, remember the argument to the future, where 
somebody may argue, well, yes, I don't have any evidence now, but perhaps someday in the future there will be evidence that's uncovered that will support my, my view. Well, that's not science. That's not, science is based on observation. Where has this been observed? Where is this unique portion of the universe? Of course, we don't see it anywhere. So again, this is a form of special pleading or an argument to the future where, yes, maybe in the future someday there will be something that backs up my position. Third is the rebound theory. And the rebound theory is the idea that the universe has expanded, okay, in the initial expansion, but now it is going to retract and it's going to expand and retract and expand and retract and expand indefinitely. Now, there's several problems with that. The first one would be the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics still applies, and so therefore the rebound would be, uh, we would be losing rebound every cycle. Do you see what I'm saying? Because of heat loss, all right? So the second law of thermodynamics would state that this rebound can't go on forever. And again, what would they, how would they get around that, that second law of thermodynamics? They'd have to deny it. They'd have to just say, well, the second law doesn't apply to my theory. Well, wait a minute, then you're in a different universe altogether. You're in Star Trek land, right? This is, so we've got them there. The other problem with the rebound theory is that the scientists believe that they've, the mathematical equations that determines the velocity of the universe and the amount of gravity that is required to pull it back, the amount of gravity required to pull the universe back isn't sufficient, okay? So, in other words, it's not going to retract again, all right? That's what they believe. So, I think the third option is really shot down. For sure, the third option is shot down by the second law of thermodynamics, all right? Now, finally, there exists multiverses. And this is the idea that, yes, we're in the universe, but there's other universes out there, and one universe uh, just simply made this universe. And we don't have any access to that universe um, this is how they would reason. I'm not saying this. That, that's how they reason. So one universe created another universe that created another universe. That's the idea. Now, let me just talk about this real quickly because if you and I say, well, hey, where is the inductive observational evidence for multiverses? They will come back and they will say, well, where is your observational evidence of a God? Okay? Because now, but remember, if we get to number four, at least we're believing there's something outside this universe. Okay, so at least now we've got the atheist saying, yes, there's a creator to this universe, right? Now all we're arguing about is who is the creator. They're saying it's another universe, right? And we're saying it's God. But what we're going to do then is we're going to use the teleological argument, the argument from design. Telos, it comes from the Greek. Uh, Telos in the Greek means goal or, or reason. In fact, um, I just preached on John 13, and Jesus, it says in John 13, he loved his disciples to the end. And that word for end was literally telos. In other words, him going to the cross was the goal of his love. So this word is actually theologically rich. So telos, meaning goal or reason. So when you and I look at the universe, we say, this universe looks like it's designed. It looks like it was built for a reason. Okay, so that's where we pull out the teleological argument, and I'm going to do that later on. I'm going to have Bob come up here and do that with us during the discussion time. Okay, so I'm going to give you more ammunition for that. But now I'm going to show you some really good evidence that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt using inductive reasoning that, in fact, the universe has to be eternal. Again, the first one I'm going to look at is the second law of thermodynamics. We've already hit that, but again, if that law is, in fact, valid, and it is, this universe cannot exist uh, indefinitely it had to be put into motion by another eternal being okay and the only way around it is to say that that law somehow doesn't apply and again you would have to violate 
a law of science to do so. The second one is the motion of the galaxies. Again, the motion of the galaxies is such that they're actually expanding outward from a center point, okay? And a lot of scientists call it a point of singularity. And a lot of scientists know that, in fact, they were at one time going out faster than they are now, okay? So they're actually slowing down, all right? But the important thing with the motion of the galaxies is they're going outward from a center point. And that would be consistent with a beginning, Okay, that's what you would expect with Big Bang cosmology. And by the way, you guys, Big Bang cosmology is on our side because it demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that, in fact, the universe had a beginning. Okay, and if it had a beginning, it's not eternal, and something has to be eternal, right? And therefore, it must be God, all right? Now, the third one is the radiation echo. Interestingly enough, scientists, there was a couple of guys named Penzias and Wilson, they found this radiation echo actually emitted from every part of the universe that they've been able to actually get their equipment upon. And let me just show you actually a quote from a man named Robert Jastrow. How many have heard of that name, Robert Jastrow? Yeah, he was the head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute. In fact, he actually formed it. And he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And on page 5, he says this. He says, No explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. Supporters of the steady-state theory have tried desperately to find an alternative explanation, but they have failed. Now, mind you, Jastrow is an... Well, at least he was a former, former agnostic, okay? This guy had no pony in the race or dog in the show or boxer in the fight or... Pitbull in the ring or whatever you want to say. He didn't have anything to, you know, he's an agnostic, okay? And he's come to the conclusion that, in fact, when you look at the scientific evidence, the radiation echo is exactly consistent with an explosion that you would expect in the beginning of the Big Bang, okay? And again, that proves that the universe cannot be eternal, all right? And I think that's very devastating, very devastating against the possibility of an eternal universe. And finally, the last one is the discovery of a great mass of matter, Big Bang cosmologists, and again, a Big Bang cosmologist would be one that holds to the notion that the universe cannot be eternal. It had a beginning, okay? And they had a theory that if, in fact, the Big Bang were true, there must be a huge center of mass that would be at a central point of the universe. Now, we had no equipment that could detect it until 1992, the Hubble telescope actually detected this very center of mass, confirming the exact equations that Big Bang cosmologists have been using. And again, this is good evidence for the Christian because it shows that the universe cannot be eternal. So friends, with these four strands of evidence, and the, the biggest one to me is the second law of thermodynamics, I do not see how you can get around it. These are devastating pieces of evidence that shows us that the universe cannot be eternal. Okay? And therefore, we have to have an eternal being outside that must have put it into motion. This case, in fact, is so compelling. This is what Robert Jastrow ends up writing in his book. On page 105 and 106, he writes this. I think it's really good. And by the way, I apologize. It's not in your notes. I'll get it up online. I forgot to put it in when I looked at it last night. He says this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Okay? You guys, the evidence is on our side. 
And that should be really, I think, a thrill to every Christian. You guys, we can go out in confidence and say the laws of logic support my cause and the laws of science validate, in fact, there must be a creator. Okay? And I think that is really exciting. Now, what I want to do now is I want to look at how atheists often attack premise two of our four-step problem that we laid forward to them. And remember, premise two is the universe could not self-create itself. Remember, that was our assertion. That's what we discovered. Well, the way they're going to try to get around this is very interesting. Again, they say the universe could come about by chance. Okay, so remember, what they're having to claim to you now is that the universe can self-create itself. Does that make sense? And how they can't just come out and tell you that nothing can do something. Okay, they can't tell you that because you'd laugh at them, rightfully so. So they're going to have to dress up this idea of nothing doing something. And the way they do it is they use a fancy word called chance. All right? And I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about this more, but that's what they're going to use. They're going to use the word chance. And I'm going to show you that the world has fallen into what I call linguistic confusion. And by the way, I'm indebted to R.C. Sproul and his book, Not a Chance, in this material. If you want to read further, read his book. It's really good. But many scientists and atheists have fallen into linguistic confusion by in which, here's what they do. They take a, a term chance that is a mathematical word. It's a word that describes mathematical probability, Right? Um, what are the chances if I flip a coin, it'll be heads or tails? Well, 50-50. But they have now taken the term chance and they're using it as a force. All right? So they've actually fallen into uh, really equivocation on a massive scale. All right? But let me show you why they do this. Quantum physics, they're going to use quantum physics as well because, again, they're going to have to dress up chance. So think about this. Chance is nothing doing something dressed up. Now, we get on, we'll start to, in other words, they know that Christians are on to that. So then what they have to do is they have to dress chance up. And what they'll use is they'll use quantum physics. Because supposedly quantum physics proves that chance can do something. All right? Now, I'm going to show you that that's not true either. All right? Now, why are they doing all these things and who's behind it? Well, of course, the people that would like these arguments would be atheists. Because, again, if atheists can prove that chance can do something, you don't need God. Right? Because nothing can do something. All right. And who else would like this? Well, open theists like this. Why would they like this idea of chance? Because if they can prove randomness in the universe, they believe it gives them evidence. And, in, in, you know, yes, it's in the general revelation, but nonetheless, it gives them evidence that, in fact, God does not know the future because he, in fact, has built the universe in such a way where he's built in randomness in chance. And therefore, God can't know. And this would fall into the process theologians as well. And that's why men like Greg Boyd likes it, and I'll show you in a minute. Now, there's other, another group that likes this sort of thing, and it's my favorite whipping boy, the emerging church. Now, why would the emerging church like chance? Because if you have randomness in the universe, it gives them evidence in their own mind anyway that, in fact, we can't know. There's randomness. We can't know. We can't know. And therefore, we're not bound by the revealed word of God. We're not bound by what we see in the general revelation. We can make up our own God who we like better. Okay? So those are the three groups that like this idea that chance can create. All right? Now, let me give you some evidence here to support my accusations. We'll start with Greg Boyd. I found this on his website. And here is his website if you want to look at it. It was up there the last time I looked. He says this, he says, quantum physics suggests that Einstein was mistaken. 
Nothing short of an empirically groundless, metaphysically mechanistic assumption kept him and some other physicists from affirming that the apparent indeterminacy principle of reality at a quantum level is in fact real or ontological. Now what I want you to see here is he likes the idea of indeterminacy. The idea that we don't know what's going on at the quantum level, that there's complete randomness, because if there's randomness built into the creation, then you and I have a God who has made things unknowable. And he's deliberately done so. That's his argument, you see. And he's using quantum physics fallaciously to do that. He doesn't understand what he's talking about. Now notice, he's taking issue here with Albert Einstein. Okay. Now let me just make a bold declaration. Anytime you have Albert Einstein on one side of an argument with science and you have Greg Boyd on the other, always go with Einstein. Okay. (laughs) That's what I found. Okay. All right. Now, let me show you some evidence of the emerging church. Now, does that that make sense to everybody? Again, randomness supports open theism because they reason God must have made the universe with randomness and unknowability, and therefore God has imposed this limitation upon himself, and therefore he cannot know the future. Okay. Now, we see more emergent confusion, and they, in fact, uh, love this quantum physics stuff as well. This is what my professor... Now, let me remind you here, this is actually from my systematic theology text. Of course, this is no systematic theology text, but this is what I had to buy at Bethel Seminary for my systematic theology text, which should be about learning the scriptures and the different doctrines of the faith. This is the one that my professor, Laron Schultz, who is in the Emerging Church, made us buy because it was his book. Okay, and this is, So this is his systematic theology text. It's called Reforming the Doctrine of God. And Laurent Schultz says this. He says, developments in quantum mechanics and chaos theory, and chaos theory that would summarize the emerging church, I think, have also challenged the early modern scientific dream of mathematically precise predictability, which presupposed a mechanistic view of causation of bodies through space and time. Now, notice this. He admits, although Einstein himself himself resisted the implications of quantum theory, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum phenomenon indicate an irreducible indeterminacy in natural events. Now, by the way, that's a, a case, a classic case of the informal fallacy of prestige jargon. Remember that? Where you try to buffalo somebody by using really big words. But I'm going to unpack it for you because I've had a lot of time to think about this stuff. Okay? Now, let me explain this. Notice again... Laurent Schultz says, although Einstein himself resisted the implications of quantum physics, there's a good reason why Einstein resisted the implications that the quantum physics were proving that there's complete randomness and the fact that nothing could do something. Because Einstein knew that it was absurd. Einstein knew that these men were claiming that nothing could do something. And he knew it. And he says, all you've done is you've dressed up the argument with fancy jargon at the quantum level. Now, what I'm going to do for you in a couple slides here is I'm going to show you where this argument comes from. In fact, it may be the next slide. It is. Here, let me show you what the big deal. What I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to explain what the quantum debate is about to show you what's at stake and to show you why the emergence, the atheists, and the open theists like it, but why they're absurd in believing this notion of randomness. This comes from a man named Timothy Ferris in his book, Coming of Age in the Milky Way. He writes this. He says, The more closely physicists examine the subatomic world, the larger indeterminacy loomed. When a photon strikes an atom, boosting an electron into a higher orbit, 
The electron moves from the lower to the upper orbit instantaneously. Now, here's the key phrase. Get a load of this. Without having traversed the intervening space, this is the famously confounding quantum leap. What is the big deal here, friends? Well, let me put it out here for you. The big deal is the claim that the orbit was traversed by chance because this electron seemed to disappear and reappear What these men were saying is that it moved by chance because they could not find the causal reason behind it. They said when a photon strikes an electron and it boosts it from another orbit and it traverses the intervening space, it did so by chance. And when they used the word chance, they were saying nothing did something. That's the big deal. Because if nothing can do something, then you can have universes that leap into existence. You can have all sorts of things that go on if nothing can do something. It violates the law of causality. It violates the law of non-contradiction. And that's exactly what Einstein realized, and that's why he resisted it. What's really going on at this level is what we don't know. We don't have the observations to determine what's going on. But let's not dress up our ignorance as scientists and make an absurd accusation that nothing can do something. We simply don't know why the electron is traversing the intervening space. Why don't we be honest as scientists and say we don't know? But we certainly can't say that nothing can do something. That's a violation of the law of causality, which drives science. Let me read you Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross has good stuff on quantum physics. Now listen to what he says. And you can find this. You'd have to Google it. I think it was called... Killing the Goliath, quantum physics. He does a really good job. He's an astrophysicist. This is what he writes about quantum physics. He says, quantum mechanics merely shows us that in the micro world of particle physics, man is limited in his ability to measure quantum effects. See, that's the problem. Since quantum entities at any moment have the potential to behave either as particles or as waves, it is impossible, for example, to accurately measure both the position and momentum of such an entity. Uh, And then he goes on, he says, in choosing to determine the position of the entity, you lose information about its momentum. So here's the deal. These light particles, I want to call them particles, but they also sometimes act as, what did he say? They act as waves. waves. Thank you. Particles and waves. Well, when you observe the momentum, you lose where they are. And when you want to see where they are, you lose the momentum. So what's the problem? The problem is in one of observation. It's not the problem isn't saying that chance did something. Do you see what I'm saying? So in other words, it's irrational to say that chance did something. That's the issue. Okay. now what I want to do, does anybody have a coin, by the way? I forgot to bring my quarter. I want to show you how we can refute this argument very easily. Oh, thanks, Patrick. I want to tell you the tale told by two coins. And again, I just want to illustrate this. Oh, thank you. Heads or tails? (laughs) That was the usage, by the way. If I flip this coin and I say, what are the chances it's going to be heads or tails? That is the proper usage of the term chance, right? That is the proper usage. And by the way, it's heads, so if anybody... Bet that. That's great. 50-50, you're right, right? Now, the way the atheists, the emerging church, and the open theists are using chance is they're using it as a force. Because remember, the electron traversed the intervening space by chance. All of a sudden, it's a force. Because they're, they're going with the, the Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle. Now, remember, Einstein resented it because he knew that it was the same thing as saying this. I'll put that coin down, and we'll wait for it to flip by chance. 
And what I recommend is you do that with the atheists, okay? Because certainly, if chance can create all there is in this huge universe, certainly chance can flip a little coin while they're standing here, right? Well, of course, you'd be standing there a long time because chance has no being. Chance can do nothing. And therefore, we cannot have electrons that move from one space to another by chance. It's absurd, okay? So what we learn here is this. Chance here is used correctly as a word that describes mathematical probability when we flip the coin. But when we look to coin B and we set it on the table, what do we learn? Chance here is used incorrectly as a force. So, friends, what we learn from this is that even at the quantum level, yes, it's complex stuff. I don't even understand all of quantum physics. I don't. I'm not a physicist, but I do know something as a pilot. A pilot likes simple stuff. You pull on a lever, stuff happens. It's cause and effect, right? You pull a lever, gear comes down. Gear doesn't come down, you cry, okay? It's cause and effect, all right? I'll tell you this. I do know that nothing cannot do something, all right? And that's what these physicists like Heisenberg were claiming. And I believe it gets to the heart of the matter. What gets to the heart of the matter is this. Heisenberg, I think, has sin in his life. I think he wants to come up with a theory that he can get rid of God, okay? That's what's behind quantum physicists who claim that nothing can do something. That's what I believe. That's what's behind it. It's bad reasoning, okay? It's bad reasoning, Chance can do nothing. And in fact, when we look at the universe, friends, and we look to the scriptures, God has declared that he has left nothing to chance. Let me show you at the end of the day, most importantly uh, to us as Christians, is what the scripture declares. And really to all the world, the most important thing is what God has declared about his creation. And I want you to see that the scripture declares that he has created all things out of nothing and he sustains them to this very day. So, for instance, in Genesis 1-1, again, very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That term created, again, I've talked about this probably ad nauseum, but let me hit it again. That comes from the Hebrew verb bara. And bara, we never see it in the Hebrew scriptures except referring to the creative acts in which God engages in because only God has created all things out of nothing. Anytime I create anything, this was created out of stuff that God made. My computer was made out of stuff that God already made. It's the old joke. You remember the joke where the atheist is having a showdown with God? And he says, I think I can create just like you can, God. And he's going to show him he's got his cup of dirt. You know, and he's going to start this whole world with his little cup of dirt. And God says, the only problem is you've got to get your own dirt. <laughs> in your own cup for that matter, right? It's all his. He's the only one who created everything out of nothing, all right? And that's what we see in Genesis 1.1. That is the implications of Barah, all right? Now let me show you how, in fact, God has left nothing to chance. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is what? It's from Yahweh. It's from the Lord. So there is nothing random, uh, when God had ordained the means of the uh, Thummim and Urim in Exodus 28:30, which was the way by the high priest, remember he had that close to his chest. Um, that was a means by which they could determine God's will. And in fact, casting lots was allowed too. But it's only when it's ordained by God in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons I believe that God ordained it is because Moses was gone. Moses, who was the mediator, who spoke to God as a friend who spoke face-to-face, was gone. And God had to still give um, direction to his people, didn't he? Now, he used dreams, he used prophets, but he also used lots. 
and the Stumumun Urim, which was at the breastplate of the high priest. And you can read about it, for instance, in Exodus 28:30. but you also can read about lost uh, lots being cast, for instance, in Joshua chapter 14, when the Israelites' possessions, their, their land allotments, were decided by lot. Um, uh, remember, Saul makes that foolish declaration where if anybody would, uh, would end up eating this food during the battle with the Philistines, they would end up dying. And he ends up finding out that it's his son Jonathan. How did he ter- determine that? Well, he did it by lots. Okay, But what we find here in Proverbs is, yes, the lot seems to us as a random thing, but because it was an ordained means to know truth by God, in fact, we see that it is the Lord who is the one who casts its very decision. So there is nothing random about God's revelation. And finally, Colossians 1.17. Here we see this great truth about Jesus where it says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create all things, but right now He sustains all things. Okay, And what that means is there is not one single random molecule Anywhere in the universe. He has it all numbered. Every molecule. Every molecule. That's what it means to be sovereign. Friends, our God has created in such a way and sustains in such a way that he has left nothing to chance. And I think he deserves all praise, honor, and glory. And isn't it interesting that the very laws of physics and the laws of logic give us further ammunition and evidence that, in fact, this is the case. That what the Scriptures declare is, in fact, true. It's just extra icing on the cake, isn't it? Okay? Now, when we come back, what I want to do is I want to look at some of the arguments that we didn't get to look at, namely the ontological, the moral, and the teleological. And we'll be able to brush up on some of those categorical syllogism skills if you so desire. (laughs) But uh, we'll come back here. We'll take a break, and we'll come back and... uh, Oh, at 8? Yeah, we'll just do it at 8. We'll take a long break.